Jeremiah 32, verse 36. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say, it is given into the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Well, last week we... Uh, described the fear of God and summarized it as the Bible's description of our intensely affectionate response to God and His great work on our behalf. So this biblical fear of God drives us to God. It flows from being forgiven and is a response driven by a biblical understanding of who God is. And we are to have this intensely affectionate response to God as God. God is holy. He is independently sovereign. He is merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's forgiving and just. He is the God who makes and keeps covenants. And the Bible's description of our response to him is fear. Well, we said we had many questions to answer throughout the the month of June, and so far we've answered who is this God we are to fear, and we've answered what is the fear of God. Now we need to answer, how do I come to fear God? So we know who we're to fear, we know what it is, now we need to know how. How do I come to fear God in the first place? And you might be wondering, why does this question need to be answered? Well, it needs to be answered because... Paul says in Romans 3.18 that there is no fear of God before their eyes. And you're familiar with Romans 3, and you know that from Romans 3, I believe it's verse 10, down through 18, and then following, Paul is describing the condition of every human, every person outside of Christ. And his concluding statement is, all of this is true because there is no fear of God before their eyes. And this is not an idea original to Paul. He's simply echoing what the psalmist said. David described the wicked in Psalm 36.1 by saying, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. So this, this a natural lack of fearing God is deep-seated within the human condition outside of Christ. And the reason that transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart is that there is no fear of God before them. So if this is our natural state, the fear of God is not before our eyes, 
we do not fear God, how do we come to fear God? Well, Elder D.J. Ward, who pastored Main Street Baptist Church in Lexington for many years, he asked a very compelling question, I think, and asked, how does someone go from not fearing God in Romans 3.18 to standing in grace in Romans 3.21 through 26? It's a perceptive question. It's a necessary question. If you want to know how he continued, you can go ask Jeff later. It may or may not have included the word scumbucket. It's a precise question, isn't it? It's a perceptive question because it gets to the heart of the issue. How does someone come to fear God? How does someone respond to God with intense affections because of who he is and what he has done? In other words, what I'm asking this morning is, how do you get out of Romans 3.18 and into the fear of God? That's what we want to know. What is Scripture's answer? After all, a Christian is someone who fears God. A Christian fears God. So when we ask this question, we're really asking, how do I become a Christian? How do I become someone who fears God, which is, by definition, a Christian? Well, God's answer through Jeremiah this morning is this. To come to fear God, God himself must change our hearts so that we fear him and, that's the first part, to come to fear God, God himself must change our hearts so that we fear him. Second part of the answer, and he, he puts his fear within our hearts so that we remain faithful to him. So to come to fear God, God himself must change our hearts so that we fear him. And he puts his fear within our hearts so that we remain faithful to him. And before we begin to look at the answer, we need to see how entirely God-centered the passage is. Our passage that we read this morning, 36 through 41, is part of a larger passage in which God is responding, responding to Jeremiah's prayer, which we find in 32, 16 through 25. Before Jeremiah's prayer, God had told Jeremiah, I want you to go buy a field. What's interesting about that is God wanted him to go by a field while Jerusalem was being attacked. Babylon is besieging the city. And God commanded Jeremiah to go by this field. And we've learned the reason why in verse 15. It's a symbol that houses and fields and vineyards shall be bought again in this land. So Jeremiah, I think rightly, does not understand what is going on. And that's what drives his prayer. And the first words of God's response began with a question for Jeremiah. You find it in verse 27. And God says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? This God, the God who created everything, is anything too hard for me? That's what he wants to know. That's what God wants to know. That's what he's asking Jeremiah. So God's response to Jeremiah from verse 27 through the end of chapter 32 is driven by this question. Is anything too hard for me? And it's interesting that this is how God started his response because Jeremiah prayed it. Verse 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. 
And this is a consistent theme throughout Scripture, that nothing is too hard for God. In Genesis 18, God tells Abraham that he can overcome barrenness. Overcoming barrenness is not too hard for God. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? So stop Sarah's words. Then God says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? In Zechariah 8, it's a scenario very similar to Jeremiah. God says, It is not too difficult for him to save the remnant of his people. We read, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant, so if it's too difficult in your sight, if it's too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. And that's the New American Standard translation. The Holy Spirit in Luke 1 told Mary that nothing will be impossible with God. Even creating conception within a virgin was not impossible for God. Nothing is too hard for God. And no doubt, Jeremiah would have been familiar with this theme. So I wonder, he knew it. He knew it, but did he know it? Is anything too hard for me? That is God's question. So here's the context. Israel has rebelled. And God is using the Babylonians to execute the curses of the covenant he promised in Deuteronomy. So God is saying, it's not too hard for me to do this, use the Babylonians, nor is it too hard for me that houses and fields and vineyards will be bought and sold in the land again. And to get a taste of the God-centeredness of this passage, just listen to the I will statements. I will gather. I will bring them back. I will make them dwell in safety. I will be their God. I will give them one heart. I will make them with them an everlasting covenant. I will put the fear of me in their hearts. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them. I will bring upon them all the good I promise them. Verse 42, I will restore their fortunes in verse 44. So directly in our passage or in the near context, there are 11 instances of God saying he will do something. I will, I will, I will. So there is not a hint in the passage that Israel was able or would have any role to fulfill in what God has planned. Indeed, the only contribution we see from Israel is their rebellion that sent them into exile. All of this is God's independent and sovereign grace on display. So as we seek to answer from the Bible how we come to fear God, the, the in absolute God-centeredness of this passage must inform our thinking. This is all about God's work. And we see that the first part of our answer involves God's work on the heart. God's work on the heart. Look at verse 39. I will give them one heart and one way. So God's response to Jeremiah started by asking if anything was too hard from him. So his first answer is, no, it's not too hard for Jerusalem to be destroyed, nor to uh, have fields and vineyards and houses be bought in the land again. Now he is answering that it is not too hard for him to gather the people again and to do all the good that he promises them. And part of the good that God is going to do for them is that he will be their God and they will be his people and he will give them one heart. Literally, singleness 
of heart, an undivided heart. And this is heart change. This is a change of heart. Their previous heart was divided. We even see at this time of Israel's history, the kingdom is divided. And the Old Testament history of the Israelites is riddled with a divided heart condition. They serve God. They serve Baal. They serve God. They serve the Asherah. They fear God. They fear something else over and over and over and over and over and over. Why? A divided heart. They need a new heart. They were not obeying God, which shows they were not fearing God. So God is going to give them a new heart, and God in His grace would completely change them. We see similar language in Ezekiel 11. Ezekiel prophesied, and I will, notice again, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that, so that heart change always results in something, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. So this heart change is covenantal. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Both Jeremiah and Ezekiel use it. So what is the Bible describing here with this one heart language, this new heart language? What's what we typically call regeneration, which is the work of the Holy Spirit in which He gives us a completely new heart that is inclined toward God, a heart that responds to God, a heart that is able to respond with the intense affections that Scripture describes. And if we want to understand the fear of God in our lives, we must understand this precious reality of regeneration because it is impossible, absolutely impossible, to fear God without regeneration. It will not happen. So, what does the Bible teach about regeneration? But one important passage on regeneration is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3. And specifically in verses 5 and 8, Jesus teaches two realities about regeneration or the new birth or born from above as we see in the Gospel of John. So verse 5, we read, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. The first reality that Christ teaches Nicodemus is that regeneration purges away the defilement of our hearts. This is what the water stands for. Our hearts, in their natural state, are bent with sin. So if we are going to have any hope of being a Christian, if we have any hope of fearing God, then something must change with our hearts. Our defiled hearts need to be changed. Something, someone, needs to remove that defilement. The second reality Jesus teaches here is that the new birth creates new life in us. This is what Jesus means when he uses born of the Spirit. This is new life, born of water and the Spirit. Something completely new is here. And the Apostle John, he echoes Jesus' words from his gospel in his letter, 1 John 3, 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for 
God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So born of God and born by the Spirit are two phrases that communicate the same truth. This is new birth. It is the work of God. And the reason John can say that the person who is born of God cannot keep on sinning is because God's seed abides in him because God put it there. This is a work of God from beginning to end. There is something new about this person. The one who could only keep sinning now will not keep on sinning. Why? They are born of God. They have a new heart. The one born of God is a new creation. So with that new creation language, we're, we're shifting to Paul's language now, aren't we? 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Two words there that we really need to understand. The first is new. The Christian is a new creation. The old has gone. The old has passed away. So we see Paul is making a contrast here. New, old. New is here. Old is gone. And the new creation is new in the sense that what is old has become obsolete and should be replaced by what is new. The new is superior in kind to the old. The, the, the word gives the sense that there's not room for both. It can't be a new creation and an old creation. You're either new or you're old. The old creation, who we were before Christ, is, is obsolete. It does not exist anymore. It has passed away. It has disappeared. It has vanished to never be found again. Put the old man on the milk carton and no one will ever find it. It's gone. The Christian is new. But what kind of new? Well, they're a new creation. If you were to go check Emily's New American Standard, it would say a new creature. Not just a new creation, it's a new creature. The result of being in Christ is a new creature. When the Holy Spirit places us in Christ, the result is something new. It's a brand new creature. Something that didn't exist before is here. A new creature. The new is superior to the old that has passed away. This means that if the old, old has passed away, if Paul is right, and this is what God has done in regeneration, if Paul is right, that means we have a new mindset. We have a new heart. We are a new person. We have new affections and new desires. We, have, we are new creatures. We have a new way of living. Everything about us is new. New. And not new according to our standard. New according to God's standard. But how, how decisive is this newness? How can we be sure that the old man has passed away. How can we know that the old man, how can, I, how can I know that the old man died? Well, Romans 6 gives a decisive answer through three words, crucified, buried, resurrected. Romans 6, 6, we know that our old self was crucified in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The old self, the old man, was crucified with Christ for a distinct purpose. That's what that in order that is there for, right? We were crucified in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. If we wanted to, we could think of this in Paul's language in 2 
Corinthians 5, the old self was crucified so that the new might come because that old has died. But not only was the old man crucified, the old man was buried. Romans 6.4, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So we were buried with Christ. Notice all of this language of union with Christ here. This has nothing to do with us. Christ, Christ, Christ. Buried with Christ. will be raised with Christ. And Paul says that the purpose of our being buried is that we might be raised to walk in newness of life. He goes on to say in verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly, certainly, certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. I love Paul's just right there. Well, maybe we will be. I don't know. Maybe you'll be resurrected. Uh, oh, hum. No. Certainly. In Christ, we have been resurrected after the old man was crucified and was buried. And the result is newness of life. It is this new creature. And if you can get this, please, please, please. If you get one thing this morning, just get this. This is not renovation of life. This is regeneration. The old man was crucified. And he was not crucified so that we could be better versions of our old self. Renovation would be putting clothes on a corpse. That's renovation. We got something better. Regeneration. There was absolutely no way, no way to make the old man better. The old man was so past the point of improvement that God kills it. He crucifies it. And he raises us up as new creatures. This is total, complete, entire, all-encompassing, any other word you can think that fits there? Life change. John Murray writes, All of the Christian life is only possible because of regeneration. If we are to have any hope of fearing God, of responding to God with the intense affection Scripture describes, then we must be born again. We cannot muster it up on our own. We cannot earn it. We can try to imitate what we see in Scripture, but eventually we will fall short because without a new heart and without the help and power of the Holy Spirit, we're doomed. It is not possible to fear God without regeneration, without being born again. You might be thinking, why does this matter? I'm a Christian after all. This has already happened to me. Well, it matters because, to quote John Murray again, regeneration is at the basis of all change in heart and life. If you have any hope of changing now as a Christian in your battle with the flesh, the devil, and the world, regeneration is the foundation of it happening. No regeneration no change. This regeneration, this new birth is radical. We are new. This is a reality for you if you are a Christian. And I understand there are other issues to think through with this, such as if I'm new, why do I still sin? But what I 
have been praying for you all week that you would grasp is that you are new. This is a rock-solid reality for those who are in Christ. You have a new heart. In the heart is the word the Bible uses to describe who we really are. And this is why Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Therefore, since you have a new heart, newness will flow out of you, right? And this glorious change happened because of the work of the Holy Spirit as he applied the finished work of Christ to our lives. And Augustine, St. Augustine, understood the Bible's teaching on this well. In church history pronunciation lesson, St. Augustine is in heaven and St. Augustine is in Florida. Okay? It's Augustine. Now that I've got that off my chest, here we go. Before his conversion, Augustine was a very sexually promiscuous man. A concubine after concubine after concubine. And one day after he became a Christian, one of the women who knew him before he was a Christian saw him in the marketplace. And she followed after him and kept saying, Augustine, it is I. He would ignore her, wouldn't respond. She would say again, Augustine, it is I. Repeat the same process, Augustine, it is I. He finally turned around and told her, but it is not I. She knew old man Augustine, not new man Augustine. He was new. Whoever she knew before, that dude, he didn't exist anymore. He was gone. So Christian... When that sin from the old man follows you and says, Ben, it is I. It is I. Turn around and say, it's not me. I am a new creature. With a new heart. And whoever you knew is dead. And that old man's been killed. Buried. And I've been raised with new life. A new walk. And you get out of here. Nothing to do with me. It's a courageous work. The glorious work of the Holy Spirit. And it's a gift that was secured by Christ. Well, what are the results of God's heart work? According to Jeremiah, look at verse 39 again. I will give them one heart in one way, that. So, heart change, that. Now we're going to look at results. 
that they may fear me forever. Oh, man. And the language here is not one of possibility. Jeremiah is, God is not saying through Jeremiah, I'm going to give you a new heart so that you might be capable of fearing me. It's not a possibility. It's a certainty. God gives us a new heart so that we will fear him. If, if anyone is going to fear God, God must first change their heart. So I ask you, has the Holy Spirit changed your heart so that you fear God? Please make this personal. Please. We already heard from Romans 3.18. We know that the world does not fear God. I'm not worried about the world right now. I'm worried about you. Are you a Christian? Do you fear God? Christians fear God. Christians respond to God with intense affections because of who He is and what He has done. Do you fear God? If not, I have good news for you. Very good news. Remember last week we read Isaiah 11. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Someone who has already, someone has already come. And his name was Jesus. And his delight was in the fear of the Lord. And he came and he lived the life you did not live. The life you could not live. But the life you should have lived. He obeyed where you disobeyed. He feared God where you had no fear of God before your eyes. And the good news is that turning to him in faith and repentance, everything I've been talking about so far will be true for you. You will fear God. You will be able and you will respond to God with these intense affections that we looked at last Sunday. Do you fear God? You know, the fear of God has really is a phrase that has fallen on hard times. Some view it as a tool to beat people over the head. But notice that God says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good. And the good of their children after them. All of this is for the good of God's people. The one heart, the one way, the fear of God is working for our good. But notice, this heart change is connected to the eternal covenant God is making with His people. That's what we see in verse 40. This is the new covenant. This is the promise of the new covenant. And the fulfillment of the new covenant promises happened because of Christ and in Christ. Jesus ratified it with His death on our behalf. So all of this heart change, this beautiful covenant is possible because of Christ. That's why we can be confident. I've yet to read in the Bible where Jesus lost. So the first part of our answer is that God must do a supernatural work in our lives so that we might fear Him. We need a, a supernatural heart transplant. If we are to fear God, the Holy Spirit must regenerate us. We must be born again. And the second part of the answer is that not only does God give us a new heart to fear Him forever, but He also puts His fear within us. Look at the end of verse 40. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. 
And this relates to the first part of our answer in that it is driving us back to God and His work. God's heart work does not make it possible to fear Him. We will fear Him. And this is similar to what we read earlier in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah, God, through Jeremiah, promises that He will write His law upon our hearts. It's the same concept. God literally puts His fear within us. We will fear God because He has changed our heart. And as He changed our heart, He put His fear in our hearts. There's a phrase uh, Victoria and I will use during intense moments with the children. Uh, I'm learning. We don't need to say it anymore, but we'll just kind of give up and uh, we'll go, you need, to, you need to go put the fear of God into these kids. The text shows that that is a fool's errand. I can't put the fear of God into my kids. I can't put the fear of God into you. And I can't put the fear of God into myself. That is absolutely stupid to think I could do that. How proud. But what a glorious promise that God says He will do it. What I can't do for you, for myself, for anybody, God will do in His grace and in His mercy. The only hope we have of responding to who God is and His great work on our behalf with intense affections is if God makes it happen. That's it. But notice again, that this work of God has a result that they may not turn from me. Just think about Israel. What have they been doing? Turning from God. Turning from God. Turning from God. To the point where God said, all right, you're going to Babylon. Get out of here. This is my judgment. Well, what's he going to do in this new covenant? He's going to keep us faithful. And how is he going to keep us faithful? By putting his fear within our hearts. That's God's work. So as God's people, we will be faithful, we will persevere, we will obey because of the work God has already done. Perfectly? Nope. But we will. We will be characterized by faithfulness. We will be characterized by obedience. We will be characterized by perseverance. So how do we come to fear God? We come to fear God when God himself changes our hearts so that we fear Him. And we come to fear God because God Himself puts His fear within our hearts so that we remain faithful to Him. And I wish, oh, how I wish I would understand this better. The fact that I respond to God with any affection is a miracle. An absolute miracle. The fact that any of us fear God is a miracle. It took a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. But because of the gracious work of the Holy Spirit, we now fear God. We now respond to God. We now have a heart that is inclined to God. 